Back up, please. Oh, welcome to yet another episode of uh, Indicast where we cover the top stories from across the world. Today I have with me a very special person who writes with the economist and has been doing that since 1997. He's authored articles in diverse fields like business, finance, media and technology and recently has won himself the Mira Award which honors excellence in media industry reporting for his surgical analysis of the new alternative media or like he likes to call it the new participatory media of blogs podcast and wiki andreas kluth is the man that we are going to talk to today hi andreas pleasure to have you here thank you hi abhishek how are you doing i'm very good uh, do you feel uh, it's a little ironical that you won yourself the award for acknowledging the the alternative media uh, you mean do i think it's ironic that it was old media people giving me the award for a new media <laughs> yeah I, i slightly ironic i mean I, I wouldn't attach too much importance to the award. I, there were sort of old media celebrities present, and it was in New York. It was a, the sort of thing that media people like talking about themselves and about each other to each other. So it, it was slightly, uh, you know, I don't think too many people in the blogosphere, let's say, would have even taken notice. So yes, but but an award is something. I mean, you you never turn it down. Ironic or not, I said thank you. <laughs> well, you're being very modest, but congratulations there. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, I wanted to ask you. There's a cliche which goes that the only thing greater about China is the hype around China. Uh, do you think this is uh, true for the alternative or the participatory medium of uh, disseminating information, or is it truly a revolution of sorts? Specifically in China now? Ah uh, no, that was just an analogy. Like they say that the oh. only thing greater about China is the hype surrounding it. Yeah, I, I understand. By the way, I used to cover China. I was based in Hong Kong, and so uh-huh. um, just to explore the analogy, there is a lot of hype around China, but that's not the only thing great about it. It's sometimes out of sync with actual progress in China. But I would say, in the case of China, the hype is the smoke that indicates there really is a fire so actually uh-huh. china there is a lot going on and it's not just hype and in the case of the media it's the same i don't actually think the hype is outpacing the actual change in the industry it not so much in india by the way but in the more developed markets uh, and especially in america is is really in in an upheaval i mean the old media parts of it uh-huh. we can talk about what parts are really in a sort of state of crisis they don't yet know how to respond to the changed situation of the new media and it's going to take them probably many years to figure it out really so no it's not hype it, it's a genuine you might say revolution uh-huh. but that's a bit of a cliche it's right. a genuine upheaval yeah. and that it doesn't help when uh, correct me if i'm wrong when countries like china do not allow a democratization of content they had an episode with google when china did not allow them to give freedom in informa- in disseminating information sometime back oh china sure china is not exhibit a in the conversation about the new media because <laughs> yeah. because of its special 
situation. If you went slightly east to Korea and Japan, then it would get interesting, and certainly south to Hong Kong and Singapore. There, the new media are in full swing. I mean, what you need for the, the new media revolution to happen fully is very high broadband penetration mm -hmm. and freedom. And you don't have either of those. In India, you have low broadband penetration, but you have freedom. Right. And in China, you don't really have freedom. But if you actually look at the languages used in the blogosphere, Chinese simplified characters as they write on the mainland is one of the top languages. So they do use it. They just don't use it, for instance, for anything political. And as you said, you know, in China and Google, sort of that was like the, the opening salvo in probably a sort of tug of war that's going to go on for many years. Right, right. And I think China China's always in a special situation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you mentioned about freedom. It's known that traditional media has always been reporting news that as it happens. It does shy away from forming opinions as opposed to blogs or podcasts. So what's your take on that? Well, the, uh, my take on that is that it's tempting to talk about the old media as if it were one thing, but it's wrong. Because it includes, for instance, yellow press tabloids in Britain like The Sun, uh -huh. as well as the BBC. It includes the New York Times here, as well as PBS, the public television. It includes Fox, uh, which is a sort of very right-wing, opinionated TV cable network here in America. It includes The Economist. It, in it includes too many different things. What you really have is market segmentation, where lots and lots and lots of old media organization uh -huh. cater to a very diverse market and everyone picks out their audience and you deliver what you think the audience wants and, and for many media, old media organizations that is actually opinion so I would actually disagree with you for instance, I mean, I write for The Economist The Economist has for 160 years given extraordinarily strong opinions yeah, yeah, that's yeah no one would accuse it of, of not giving an opinion so in that sense, you could say we've always been a blog. That's you know I say yes. that tongue in cheek. But so it's not true uh -huh. that there are no opinions in the old media. What is true is that the opinions are sort of filtered through this elitist process because editors are in charge. Editors sometimes answer to publishers who may be owned by corporations or by Rupert Murdoch right. uh, or whatever. And the blogosphere does cut through that because suddenly everyone has an opinion and everyone gets to write about it. It cuts that Gordian knot of elitism, right. but the drawback is you just get chaos and noise. Not every blogger is equally trustworthy or important, so you need other mechanisms to navigate your way to the opinions on the net that matter to you. Right, so you, you mean to say there is a big credibility issue when it comes to user-generated content because, uh, for example, The Economist has been around since 1843, so it is, it's accumulated wisdom of so many years, whereas a blogger who, is, who gets famous overnight might not merit that much uh, attention because he doesn't have credibility. Is that what you're saying? Um, he, not quite. I mean, at first, certainly, that's the question I keep getting asked. Uh -huh. um, the credibility issue with user-generated media, uh -huh. so user-generated media means anything that's created by amateurs. It could be a photos on Flickr, 
could be videos on YouTube, could be blogs. Can but, this can uh, this be an example of user-generated content that that we are doing right now? Uh, yes, and it actually is an example for another trend, which is that user-generated content over time becomes harder to distinguish from mainstream uh -huh. content because you know it depends. Are you an amateur or are you a professional, Abhishek? Uh, I've I've been doing this for a year and a half with my co-founder, but. I wouldn't say I am from an elite. Uh, I'm from any publishing house or media, so I I'll call myself somewhere between an amateur and a professional. And do you make a living from this? Uh, we're trying to. We're trying to get some venture funding since the past couple yeah. of months. So we we are trying to go that way. Yeah. So you're an important an important example in this trend because huh. it, it's really true. Is that over time in any revolution, in the, even in the in history, in the Renaissance and so forth, when the printing press was in the beginning, you have sharp delineations, sharp camps, you know, the old and the new. And over time, both the old and the new change, and the lines get blurry. And we're now sort of one or two years into this revolution, and you have more people like yourself, where it's getting harder to distinguish. Now, so let's just say we call this, this podcast, user-generated media. Is it trustworthy? Now, you are actually exactly like me, me being in the old media, in that you care about your reputation. Just the fact that I'm in an old media organization and you're in a new media organization makes no difference. So the uh -huh. next step is how would users judge our credibility? In my case, I have a reputation to lose, but I don't have to fight for the credibility each week because I write for The Economist and users tend to trust the brand. And in your case, you're trying to establish your brand and by proving in each podcast that you're credible and useful and entertaining and insightful. Uh -huh. And so my thesis is actually over time, we're all in the same boat. Now, what if you, if listeners to this podcast decide that you are just good at your job? They will recommend it. They can recommend it by rating it so that it's easier to find as an iTunes or they can link to your web page and so forth so that over time, other people will will discover your, you, and over time, the credibility issue is solved right. through a democratic process. Yeah, point taken, point taken, Andres. Uh, but you know, uh, there are times when, uh, when there are people like Michael Moore, the guy who won himself the Oscar for Bowling for Columbine. Uh, he's loved by the audience because he talks their language, he, he connects. Uh, do you think people normally like non-conformists? like John Stewart or Michael Moore or Mayer. So they've got not much to lose because when they have a story out, they are only risking their reputation, unlike magazines, etc., who have got a lot more to lose, and that's why they are much more careful about what they write. Yes, well, I would say that um, you, you gave examples of John Stewart and Michael Moore. Right. In the, now, I, I don't know, are they actually well-known in India? Uh, well, they are well-known among the people who... Uh, know how to use iTunes and like entertaining content. Yeah. We we have because we have shows he, like John Stewart, I mean we I mean a rip off of John Stewart or Jay Leno shows, uh, those are pretty popular in Indian languages. Yeah. In the case of John Stewart, the first thing to say is that he is actually part of the old media. Right. I mean, he works for the Comedy Central was owned by Viacom, which is an old media company. In fact, it's even considered a dinosaur. You know, it's suing YouTube and Google. You know, how do you explain John Stewart and Michael Moore? How do you explain this fresh iconoclastic point of view? Right. 
which you didn't used to get in the old media. My thesis is that it, it is the influence of the user-generated media that you see at work here, because the presence of user-generated media changes the old media, you know, because yeah. the entire culture changes as young people spend more time with each other's user-generated content, making fun of it, and they're witty, and, you know, they, they poke holes in cliches. Right. It gets, and, and the old, and, and they defect from the old media. They lose interest. So the old media says, oh, my God, what are we doing wrong? <laughs> and the, the old media says, oh, my God, our customers, our viewers are making fun of us right. because that's what's happening. And so the old media says, well, look, we need to change. And so we need to give them something that's kind of edgier, Right. And and then and then you get John Stewart and Michael Moore and so you see the media is actually improving in general right mm -hmm. there is less truly bad and truly ridiculous old media content than there used to be because there is now all this competition from user generated media and John Stewart interacts very easily with the user generated media because their video videos are pirated on YouTube and people blog about them, people link to them, and then John Stewart talks about the blogs and it, it's sort of like they're 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 flirting. Uh -huh. You know, they're flirting with each other. It's it, they're winking. There's a humor in it that <laughs> says, right, Look, right. we understand. We are we understand this new culture. We're not like the, the dinosaurs. And so so I think they're great examples that the media as a whole is changing because of the addition of the new media. Uh -huh. So it's like the, new me the old media is willing to learn from what's happening uh, in, in the new media. Oh, very much, yeah. You know, the Wall Street Journal, uh, uh, you know, as you know, Rupert Murdoch is trying to buy the Wall Street Journal. Yes. Now, Rupert Murdoch is a fascinating character. I don't know what his media holdings are in India. I know he used to have some satellites. Uh, yeah, he, he does, sure. he still has, yeah. Does he have newspapers in India? Uh, not yet, not yet. Not yet. But, you know, he's a very controversial figure. And he, his company, which is called News Corp, is one of the largest media companies in the world, is an old media company. Yes. And he was one of the first to realize that the user-generated media will change all the media. So he bought MySpace. MySpace. And he's doing interesting things with that, and he's trying to figure out how it changes the other parts of his media organization. So, so people like Rupert Murdoch, even though they're old, they very much now understand that you know the user-generated gener media will never go away. Uh huh. That's true. I mean, with uh, presidential candidates like um, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton campaigning on YouTube, that was something amusing. That uh, the internet could be such a big boost for people of that stature. Oh yes. First of all, you know, Hillary Clinton announced her her uh, candidacy on YouTube. Uh huh. Or, you know, on on the web, on right, the web, right. on the web video which was shockingly, you know, which was new. And then you have things like that Obama video where that sexy girl sings a love song to Obama. <laughs> I mean, you didn't you have to used to have that in the past. It's well worth watching if only for the charming singer. <laughs> uh, but but then on the other hand, you probably won't know about this, but there was a big election last fall here in America for the Senate and for Congress, and uh, one candidate lost because he made a racist comment while on campaign. Right. Someone recorded it with their mobile phone. It was up on YouTube. Now, so it adds a sort of transparency, but also a sort of pressure, a sort of 24-hour, seven-day-a-week pressure mm -hmm. on candidates, on everybody, that is completely new. 
And you know, I was on a panel on Friday here in Silicon Valley. It was actually 4,000 Indians, the IIT campuses, and I was moderating a panel about this issue, the new media. And one of the issues we were talking about is whether the new media are good or bad for democracies like America or like India. And it was a great debate. We we basically could think of as many good things as as bad things for democracy. The people like you know, let's say neo Nazis or, uh-huh. or racists, or they have the new media as well. If you see what I mean. Right, so, right, right. So everything is out there. It's a bit of a cesspool. So you're relying on like the collective immune system of society uh-huh. to to produce antibodies for the viruses and basically only get the good stuff over time. That's nicely put, nicely put, Andreas. Do you, do you think these uh, social networking sites like MySpace or here in India like Orkut are a waste of time? I mean, people as young as 19, 15, they are onto it for better part of the whole day and according to me, it's a waste of time. What do you think? Apart from connecting with... Uh, I'm, yes, I'm not really... I'm turning 37 and I'm married and I have a daughter so I'm not dating, I'm not doing any of this, I have less of a reason to be on social networks but Uh if I were in in college again, Uh I would be on Facebook all the time, now (laughs) I think the social networks are not a waste of time I think some of them are and for some people but you see, some people always just waste time and it doesn't matter whether they're on a social network or not and other people are disciplined with their time Mm -hmm. and they will find ways to use social networks so I can't say that they're a waste of time as you mentioned Orchid is big in India I didn't know that I know it's very big in Brazil Brazil. the funny thing is yeah it's owned by Google the funny thing about it is that nobody in America has even heard of it so uh, by the way it's also famous in the Philippines so Uh how did that happen so it's very bizarre and here in America it's all MySpace and now it's all Facebook and so for, for the younger people and for professionals for older people it's LinkedIn yeah that's uh, pretty famous so people who are dating used to go to Match.com and now if they really want to find a marriage partner they go to eHarmony and so forth so what you're seeing is the same thing that you saw in the old media over the previous hundred years which is at first you have confusion mm-hmm. everyone's trying to figure out what it is mm-hmm. and then you have a segmentation where people go where the market splinters into smaller audiences and social networks cater to that and everyone goes to the social network that is right for them and at that point it stops being a waste of time and you know there there are now social networks for old people or for cancer survivors who need support from other cancer survivors uh-huh. and and so i think it's getting more and more useful you know, this is the same old story. If something is new, and if it's new, we don't quite know how to use it yet. So first, society has to get used to it. We have to get familiar with it, and as we get used to it, we find new uses. So I think social networks are here to stay, and more important over, t- over time. Ah, I initially had a difference of opinion, but I guess you're right. I mean, when social networking sites encourage you to create content as well, like there are a few of them in India who have been funded because... They help you upload photos and blogs and podcasts and help you play with your own con- content. So, uh, w- what do you think is the future of all this Web 2.0 as they call in India? Uh, I'm not quite sure how much uh, you know about and how, how often have you traveled out here, but I just want to know from a person uh, who writes for The Economist, what are his views or his perception about India and the Internet? 
So you, the question is about India and the internet specifically? Yeah, because uh, well, Indians have I have uh, seen that there is no MySpace or an Orkut or a YouTube coming from India, and I've always wondered why. Yeah, I don't know. You know, first of all, I have to say that I don't know much about India, and so I want to not say anything stupid. Uh-huh. So the other thing, though, is this issue came up during that panel that I told you right, about, right. Uh-huh. where I was in an audience of thousands of very educated Indians. And so at one point I said, well, look, we're talking about new media and blogs and so forth, but you in the audience, how many of you, when you're in India at home, get a paper newspaper? And almost all the hands still went up. Uh-huh. And so we sort of agreed that India is actually slightly behind in all of this. And what could be the reasons for that? Well, I think I think the reasons are very obvious and very banal, and so therefore they will disappear. But one reason is, is poverty, and the other is the internet penetration, which is very low. It's sort of between 2 and 5%, I believe. In other words, only 2 and 5% of Indians have a broadband connection, a wireless, reliable broadband connection, which is really sort of the infrastructure requirement. Once that happens... Uh-huh. I think India is going to catch up very fast and probably even sort of leapfrog because there's less of a, no, I shouldn't say there's less of a tradition to disrupt, but the media organizations are less entrenched in uh-huh. India than they are here, right? I mean, here they're older and bigger. Yes. They have more to lose, and they're more confused, whereas in India they have a little bit more time. Uh because of the internet penetration. So right now, they're in the great position where they can simply watch what happens in America and Europe, what works and what doesn't work. You know, right now, America is sort of the laboratory where the experiments are conducted, and everything that works here will eventually come to India. Yeah, that's that's possibly true, but the blogging phenomenon has, uh, well, has taken up in India, and we had a blog meet not very long ago in Pune. The advertisers actually were willing to put their money into blogging, and they didn't mind diverting some of their advertising money from traditional media to blogging and podcasting. So that's happening slowly but surely. Well, that, that, I, I'm, I'm not surprised because, you know, one thing you, you have probably in India even more than here is I'm sure that the, the people who are blogging in India are sort of more educated, more savvy, are exactly the sort of people that advertisers would want to reach. Right. 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 So they're the early adopters. So the advertisers have to go where those opinion makers are. And so those, so those, am I right? I yeah, mean, yeah, bang so on. Indian bloggers are probably more attractive to advertisers than the mainstream Indian media consumers, you know? And I, I have this, uh, well, off the record, if I may say, is that uh, in The Economist, all the articles that are written, they, they have a, a character, a humor, and some amount of candidness to it. Uh, does this come naturally or uh, do you guys actually strive towards making the newspaper or the magazine as informal as possible yet it is filled with juicy and meaty content? Well, if, thank you for the compliment. I don't know why you said it's off the record, by the way. Oh. I don't know what that means. When, when we're doing a podcast, uh, I don't know how we're going to do this off the record. But no, no, we are. I, we are. I'm, I'm on the record. I, I, I know, I know we're just joking. But, uh, so I'm on the record and... I get this, uh, and, and so thank you for the compliment. I think it was a compliment. Right, we're uh, a, a little, little, little insight in the Economist is um, first of all we're very few journalists in the whole world, editors and correspondents. We have only about roughly seventy seven zero journalists, uh-huh. writers and editors. I mean, so very few of us, and 
it's a little bit like a family. You people stay for a long time, I rarely ever leave, and you have some things in common. You sort of have a worldview in common. And part of that is that, like, I'm not British, but because I've been there so long, you sort of have a little bit of this British sense of humor that right. comes naturally. Or if it, and, and if it doesn't come naturally, you're not likely to be happy as a writer at The Economist. So uh-huh. uh, that's it. There are some writers that are better than others, and you have individual styles. The, the readers don't notice that necessarily because it all looks the same and because there's no bylines. You know, we, we're all so unique in that we don't have names in the articles, yeah. which is sometimes frustrating. It can be, can be frustrating for the writers as well as for the readers because writers sometimes enjoy recognition when they write something good, you know, but so we don't usually get that and it means the readers don't know who writes what and in general though it means readers don't care, as you said, this cavalier, quirky, cosmopolitan point of view and it just works and I have to be humble though, it it doesn't always work, you do occasionally get articles that aren't so good or aren't Uh that you know, humorous or whatever. But in, in general, that's the idea. That's what we, we try to do. And, and I guess I would say from, from most of it, it does come naturally. And if it doesn't come naturally, you're better off leaving. You know? <laughs> but um, Well, I have to say, I've been reading The Economist since I was 20. I'm 24 now. And uh, I mean, hats off to you guys. And, and it's not that because you're on my podcast that I'm uh, trying to put you on. But it's just that most of what you write is opinionated. Even during the time when Bush got elected, I think you you had an opinion against him, but then you stood by it. Uh, right. Yeah. So, well, that's one thing that I've learned in the past few months while I write on my. Do you do you blog, Andreas? I I don't personally blog, and there's many reasons for that. One is I just have no time. I'm uh-huh. I'm also I also want to write a book, and I'm a father of a young child, and uh, I've even been teaching part of oh. time at the at UC Berkeley at the journalism school. But in my main job, I'm I'm, I'm the correspondent for the Economist, so I have no time. And and the other thing is, I even if I had time, I'm not. Sh- we have some blogs on the Economist, but. But in terms of a private blog, I'm not quite sure how I would manage this issue that, you know, if I'm anonymous in The Economist, uh-huh. but then I have a private blog, I think that might introduce some tension. I think uh-huh. sooner or later that could lead to a conflict. You know, if I, yep. let's say, I wrote about stories or thoughts, and people would then know who I am and would say, well, and they would link to my article, which is anonymous, and <laughs> to my blog. And so, so short answer is no, I'm not blogging yet. Okay. But that may change. And, and of course, I may get a sort of private blog just for my, my parents and my family uh-huh. with, let's say, family news or something. But I haven't even done that yet. But I'm a, I consume all my news through an RSS reader. So dozens of blogs and newspapers come into my RSS reader, uh-huh. and I'm constantly in the blogosphere. I just oh okay. Can you t- can you tell us something about your book that you mentioned? Uh, you've started work on your book. Have oh, you? the the book I I've, I um had a few book ideas. The one I'm I'm thinking of um, pitching now is is completely different genre from anything I write about at the Economist. A book about Hannibal, who was a famous Carthaginian general who crossed the Alps with elephants and slaughtered the Romans, and he kept winning victories over the Romans, and he kept being very successful, but then suddenly he failed. In other words, and so the book would be not just a biography, but a a book about how successful people fail. Uh Um, You know, how you and me could fail, because success can be sort of imposter, it can be... uh, it can fake you out and lead you to disaster. 
And so I'm going to use this very colorful historical figure from ancient history of Hannibal uh-huh. to, uh, to write a, a series of essays about how success and failure are not what they seem. So that's the idea. Wow, but that's I interesting. That's interesting. You know, yesterday when Federer beat Nadal, they said something similar about Bjorn Borg, uh, who won five Wimbledon in a row uh, back in the 80s and retired when he was only 26 because he burned out. Well, you know, that that could be, in fact, uh, uh, in the book, I would also compare Hannibal to lots of other people, like Steve Jobs, like, Ah, um, you know, Madonna. Steve Jobs, tell me something. and like like uh, Bjorn Borg as well. In fact, you know, you might do me a service if uh, if, if listeners uh-huh. uh, are listening uh, and they have a, and and if what I just said gives them ideas about people, uh, whoever uh, in their lives who have uh, sort of had successes that turned into failures or who've had failures that turned out to be the cause of success. Maybe they can, you know, write that in the comments on your website or and I'd like to look or they can email me. I, I'd like to know. I'm actually doing that part of the research right now. Oh, that's cool. I'd like, to collect, I, I'd like to collect as many of these examples as possible. In the case of Steve Jobs, he's an interesting example for the for the opposite where uh-huh. the reason why he's so successful now uh-huh. Uh, he would say, or he has said, is that he had an awful failure early in his life. If you remember, he got fired from Apple, from his own company yes, in 1985. John Scully, yep. Yeah. And, you know, he was basically as depressed uh, as you can be. I mean, he thought it was over. Right. But now he realizes that what really happened is, is that that failure liberated him. If he hadn't had that failure, he would probably have got trapped in his early success and would never have created what he created since. And so he had, he spent 10 years in the wilderness, mm-hmm. and those 10 years turned out to be very important years because he created Next, which is a company that made an operating system, which is now actually the Mac operating system. Right. And he, he bought Pixar, yeah. you know, a media company, an animation studio. He did things because he had nothing to lose anymore, and mm-hmm. he just did things that he wanted to do. And 10 years later, he was now ready to go back to Apple. Some people would have, in 1985, quit. They would have never achieved anything again uh-huh. for the rest of their lives. But he kept going and realized that the failure was something he could use for an even greater success. And so failure was an imposter. So in a sense, he's the exact opposite of this Carthaginian general named Hannibal, uh-huh. who didn't have a failure early on. He kept winning. He kept winning, but because he kept winning, he never thought about where he was going and it didn't lead anywhere, and suddenly it was all over, and Rome won, and Carthage was completely erased from history. It, it doesn't even exist, didn't even exist right. anymore. And so, so they're, in a sense, they're opposites of each other, and you can say that about very many interesting and famous people. Uh-huh. So anyway, if, you're, if yeah. your readers, if your listeners have any good examples, um, maybe uh, maybe they'd like to let me know. I'd yep, be absolutely, let's do that, let's do that. I mean, I'm going to tell all my friends... Uh, who are interested in technology and who will be more than glad to listen to you because during my days at my B school we used to have a bunch of folks who used to read The Economist very regularly and they are going to be very envious that I'm the one who's talking to a journalist from The Economist today. <laughs> Andreas, it was great having you here and sincerely it was a privilege to have you. Well, thank you very much, Abhishek. It was a great honor. I'm, I'm glad to do an Indian podcast. It's my first Indian podcast, so... 
it was great fun and uh, i was i was keeping my fingers crossed because uh, i hope that the internet connection didn't uh, go off while we were recording and the broadband gods have smiled upon us so that's that must be a good omen <laughs> yeah. yep thanks a lot have a nice day bye bye thank you everybody bye bye